0: Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A-Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Mihal Rozvorski, and welcome to the show. Although there are only two days left until Donald Trump's inauguration, today I look at the turn to the right that's already underway across parts of the Global South for a while now. I spoke with the historian Vijay Prashad about the nationalist Narendra Modi's economic agenda in India, and left activist Sabrina Fernandez on the permanent austerity being implemented in Brazil by the new Temer government. I also asked both what the lessons the lefts of their countries hold for those of us battling an empowered right in the north. My first guest, Vijay Prashad, is a historian, journalist, and author. His books include The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and The Poorer Nations, A Possible, possible History of the Global South. He teaches history in the Northeastern US, and here's our conversation. Well, basically, let's start. But before getting to, to some of the broader questions about the political economy of India, uh, I mean, there was, there was this recent decision where the Indian government, uh, led by Narendra Modi, withdrew basically a majority of the cash in circulation in India in also roughly kind of one fell swoop. Um, this process is called demonetization. It's been widely criticized in India, um, and it seems from many quarters, really not just the left. Maybe you could start just sort of by explaining what this reform is, and more what what has been its impact um, and how it affects sort of the political economy of India.
1: Well, it's a stunning thing, you know. On November eighth of twenty sixteen, uh, almost from nowhere, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his cabinet basically declared that two uh, legal tenders, two kinds of notes, were suddenly going to be made illegal. And that was the 500 rupee note and the 1000 rupee note. And now, just some context on these notes themselves. These notes are basically the uh, very common way in which people conduct their everyday business. In other words, For small shopkeepers, for people getting daily wages, etc., you know, uh, there are twenty rupee notes, fifty rupee notes, hundred rupee notes, and the rate of exchange is about fifty-five dollars or so, uh, fifty-five rupees to the dollar. So Mm -hmm. a five hundred rupee note is just about uh, less than you know, let's say ten dollars, you know, roughly. And so these are not uh, very high notes, you know, these are notes that are there in the general circulation. And so when the prime minister said these notes are now going to be illegal and you have to come in and you have a set of, uh, a certain ceiling of how much money you can actually exchange, you know, in the bank, uh, in order, he argued, to get rid of so-called black money or corruption, Um, you know, this idea that people are holding cash outside the banks uh, in a sort of secondary economy. Now, uh, of course, there's a a great deal of corruption in the Indian economy, as in any economy. And of course, this corruption has its place in the uh, keeping of cash outside, uh, you know, uh, legitimate channels. But the prime minister and his cabinet made a stunning uh, error in a way, you know, most black money or most corrupt money. Is not held in cash in 500 and thousand rupee notes. Most of it is held digitally. You know, uh, you conduct some kind of, of uh, exchange on property, and you have money sent outside the country, let's say to Panama or the Cayman Islands or whatever. So the vast amount of money, when you talk about big capital corruption, big capital corruption is happening digitally, not uh, in terms of you know physical notes. Now, that's one error that, in a sense, has been made. The second error that's been made is that most of the Indian economy, 90% of it, 90% of the Indian economy is in the informal sector. That means that this is generally the sector not, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't come under, you know, labor regulations, environmental regulations. You know, Indian economy in that sense is deeply anarchic. And this form of Anarchic economy or uh, informal economy is basically cash dependent, so that small shopkeepers at the end of the day uh, take home their little box of cash and keep it at home. And the reason they don't go to the bank and deliver their profits is that their margins are very weak, and they need that cash the next day to go and buy goods to sell again. And then they need the other amount of cash that's surplus for their own expenditure. So they are not necessarily hoarding vast amount of money outside the gaze of the tax man. They are merely in a cash economy. So having, uh, in a sense, immunized big capital, which is really the corrupt entity, and struck against small shopkeepers, people with small holdings of various kinds, the prime minister and his cabinet has essentially paralyzed the economy. So uh, this demonetarization scheme which was to have gone after black money has actually had the effect of essentially economic paralysis so that's what uh, you know it's extraordinarily incompetent you know if you look at it like that yeah no everything i've
0: read about it has has just been sort of withering critique and all these expecta- you know expectations that there would be large amounts of notes that would be extinguished whereas i think they got back 90 90- you know, some very high number 96, 97% of the notes. Do they have a replacement idea? Or do they have an idea for for the economy beyond these kinds of measures? And and how does this bad idea fit in with the rest of sort of their economic agenda? Is it consistent with other things that they're doing?
1: Well, look, uh, just to say that uh, this is not the first time that India has Uh, changed its notes or demonetized. Uh, It was done twice before, in January 1946 and in 1978. At the time, the government demonetized 1,000 rupee notes, 5,000 rupee notes, and 10,000 rupee notes. Now, you know, it's important to recognize that in 1946 and 1978, most people didn't possess 1,000 And 10,000 rupee notes. And in fact, I would argue the bulk, vast bulk, had never ever seen these notes. You know, it had never crossed their path because at the time, a thousand rupees was a vast amount of money. This time, uh, the government went after the 500 and 1,000 and then said, we are going to produce a 2,000 rupee note. See, what's bizarre is it appears that uh, a 2,000 rupee note would in fact be a better way to keep black money. Then a 500 rupee note, you'd have to have a slimmer briefcase, for instance, to carry around your illegal money. So their seriousness here has been, I think, quite severely questioned. But on the other side of it, there is, of course, something at work, which is that it has capitalized banks. Because, yes, certainly, uh, you know, uh, pensioners, my mother, for instance, at age 88 and others, had kept... Uh, whatever little amount of spending money they want, they don't go and circulate it through banks. You know, uh, if I send my mother a uh, cash-on-demand note, you know, a remittance, she mm-hmm. goes and cashes out that remittance and keeps the money in her Almira, you know, in a, a cupboard, locks it, and then through the month spends that money down to zero, waits for the next remittance. She is not circulating her money through banks. And the reason is that there's no reason for her to do so the interest is not going to be significant uh, for her. So what this has actually also done is it's capitalized banks. And some people speculate that capitalizing the banks may have been the purpose, you know, to Mm -hmm. make so-called non-performing assets uh, performing Mm -hmm. again. Others have speculated that this has been a push from the World Bank and the IMF and other organizations that have been driving an agenda. Uh, to so-called move the Indian economy into the uh, 21st century. In other words, uh, to push people to have bank accounts, to move people to the digital economy, you know, to use uh, ATM cards and so-called PTM cards and, 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 you know, things like that. So there may be a broader agenda, which is not about black money as such, but which is about capitalizing banks and which is ab- about moving uh, the Indian Uh, you know, uh, economic agent uh, into Mm -hmm. the digital economy. And if that has been the actual objective, uh, not the stated objective, there may be some value in that. In other words, it may be true that people have now moved by force, you know, uh, to banks. Uh, The former prime minister, who was a very close IMF man, uh, has called this basically loot and plunder. Now, he is a smarter person than than uh, most people in the government. He was, after all, uh, you know, uh, the member of the Reserve Bank of India, had a long career. Uh, he's an economist. So he called it loot and plunder. You know, it's not the communists so it's not left-wing economists who are saying loot and plunder alone. This was a mainstream man who essentially was the finance minister when India liberalized. So, you know, whether it's to get rid of black money or it is to capitalize banks or it is to create digital consumers, whether, you know, whatever the actual motive, in either case, this has really created plunder uh, for people's savings.
0: And you mentioned the World Bank and the IMF and the sort of, you know, bigger, bigger picture kind of economic agenda. I feel that in most of the media reports around India for the last while, they're generally sort of scarce in the West but most of them are really focused on um, you know religious tensions the BJP as a kind of ethno-nationalist or or religious nationalist kind of kind of force and we don't really hear much about their economic agenda and, and, and the sort of economic transformations and whether these are continuing getting worse maybe speak about speak about that and again yeah how this fits into the a broader picture because it seems like it seems like we basically don't hear about India's economy much
1: well you know uh, it's a good reason i mean in a sense the uh, other things crowd out economic news in other words uh, news of violence or the government going after people or in fact uh, you know what uh, goes by the name of democracy meaning nonstop elections uh, these crowd out economic news That's one issue. Secondly, of course, as you know, uh, economic news is uh, considered quite boring and is basically relegated to, uh, sadly, relegated to the financial pages, um, which has its own agenda and its own kind of uh, propagandic categories. Uh, They are interested in growth rates and they are interested in so-called reform. And their categories uh, don't actually give you a sense of economic life. Uh, They give you a sense of whether India is a worthwhile place to invest in, you know. (laughs) So it's a completely different ideological framework. So in that sense, we don't get a good story, for instance, on the social impact of economic policy, you know, in the news pages. I mean, you know, if it, if at all it appears in the, the business pages, you might get something that talks about, say, wage loss. Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, to uh, hundreds of thousands of agricultural laborers, casual laborer, you know, and this wage loss will have an impact on something which has an impact on the stock market. You know, in in that regard, you might get some news. So the question of, um, you know, how things are going in India uh, has to begin in agricultural uh, sector. Um, It has to begin in the countryside. You see, the financial pages are very interested in what's happening in cities. Because uh, cities is where the financial action is, and it's where uh, you get to see um, the growth rates, uh, you know, engines. In other words, real estate where malls are constructed or, f- for instance, in um, certain kind of commodity purchases like cars and such like. So they uh, concentrate a great deal on the urban sector. If you look in the rural sector, uh, there is a very, uh, I think, uh, troubling, uh, you know, um, issue here. Uh, We have seen over the course of the last five years, in fact the last 25 years, but in the last five years quite severely, we have seen that, uh, you know, uh, uh, work days have declined in rural areas. In other words, there is basically unemployment. Uh, We've seen that nutrition rates are going down. Um, There have been studies that have shown that bodies are changing. In other words, over the last 25 years of, you know, of so-called liberalization, Uh, uh, people from farming backgrounds, landless workers, etc. We're seeing a decline in in their basic body, you know. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. where history is written, in height, uh, in body fat, things like that. In other words, people are basically cannibalizing themselves, uh, unable to to eat properly, uh, unable to thrive. Uh, We're seeing in some states some troubling indicators in terms of literacy, uh, perhaps a step back. Uh, We are seeing, uh, and I I mentioned nutrition, we're seeing about maybe uh, close to 600,000 pregnant women and almost 500,000 nursing mothers in dire need of nutrition. You know, this was a government study. Uh, You know, 600,000 pregnant women in dire need of nutrition. By the way, I would just like to put that in context. That's about the number of people killed um, in Syria, you know. Uh, So, uh, these are pregnant women who are in dire need of nutrition. This means that their children will be born uh, with malnutrition, um, which means we'll have a generational problem in the body. You know, that's why I emphasize the body. There is increase in rural debt. Uh, Government schemes to help agricultural debt have declined, have been cut, Uh, we see that when uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, the harvest comes in, uh, price supports have basically damaged, uh, have been damaged. There's been roughly a 70 percent drop in prices. So uh, what's happening is in many places farmers are abandoning basically their standing crops of things like even tomatoes, which, you know, you'd imagine have a high price at the market, but they have a low price at the field and that gap is because of a certain kind of commercialized agriculture promoted by the government uh, by actually suppressing the field price and allowing free markets at the market price and this gap between the suppressed field price and the increased market price of course creates inflation for consumers but it allows you know this uh, commercialized agriculture to thrive so i mean You know, if you look seriously at the rural areas, that's where you get, I think, the real picture of uh, how people are suffering. Seven, um, a McKinsey study, again, not by a left-wing economist or anything, a McKinsey study showed that about 760, let's say 700 million Indians live in a condition of deprivation. You know, that's just a stunning number that half the Indian population lives in deprivation. And this is 25 years after so-called liberalization or the reforms. The other thing I wanted to ask, I mean, where is there is there widespread
0: resistance to this, to the liberalization agenda, especially as it, you know, goes into its second, third, third decade? We saw the other piece of news that came out of India recently was that enormous strike, um, which is, you know, largest strike in history. And, and you hear about this one big upsurge. But again, it's kind of decontextualized. Where where did that come from? What is the kind of resistance from the trade unions to this government's agenda or to the liberalization agenda in general? And is, is it actually sort of ramping up? Is there is there real social force behind it?
1: Well, you know, um, it's become a complicated thing. And this is a very, uh, I think, important piece of the conversation. Over the course of the last maybe 10 years, the trade union movement in India has mobilized this annual general strike, and it's a general strike against liberalization. Initially, uh, it was quite defensive in its orientation. So one saw trade unions basically fighting against retrenchment, against, uh, you know, cuts in wages uh, and things like that. Then over the course uh, of this 10-year period... I think there's been a very substantial recognition by the trade unions that given that, as I said, 90% of the economy is in in the informal sector, the informal sector's issues have to be raised by the trade union movement, and the trade union movement has to put much more emphasis into its work building bridges with the informal sector. Now, it's important to uh, mention that When I say informal sector, this doesn't mean they are not in trade unions. You know, some of the strongest or most intelligent trade unions in India today are unions, for instance, of so-called Anganwadi workers. These are workers who work in creches, you know, basically what you'd consider daycare workers. You know, they take care of people's children. Uh, Then there are, uh, you know, unions of, of women who provide daily meals you know, uh, various social service unions. You see, it's interesting. moment you liberalize uh, the economy and, you have, and the government withdraws from social support, all kinds of social support networks have to be provided in a place like India by the government. In other words, charity is not going to fill the gap. You know, you don't have that kind of uh, scale. So even though the government withdraws from the provision of social welfare, it has to yet produce schemes you know, to feed people, otherwise you'll have mass starvation. So the workers in these sectors, most of them women, have been very uh, strongly unionized. And they have been uh, part of this strike movement. So this last strike, where about 180 million workers went off the job, the main issues that they were arguing for were actually issues of the informal sector. In other words, you know, strikes or trade union activity. These are often seen as one-off events. There's a strike. There must have been an issue. Did you win? This is mm. a very wrong way of looking at labor struggles. Labor struggles are a process. They are about strengthening the power and confidence of the working class. So they cannot happen in a one-off way. You, know, you just have a strike, and you win a mm. victory. Uh, you know, a strike is not like going shopping. I went shopping. I bought something. I came home. This is a very capitalist way of looking at events. You know, a socialist understanding is that activity is about building confidence for people. And this process of the general strike and other uh, activities of this kind, you know, not just strikes, but, you know, rallies, marches, the so-called Padhyatra, where, you know, workers will walk across the state in a kind of uh, display of activism, you know, uh, hands across the state, uh, you know, things like that. These build the consciousness and, and confidence of people. And so, uh, yes, it's a very slow and protracted process. There is nothing very dramatic. Indeed, that 180 million strike, that's a very dramatic instance, but it's only part of a much broader process. As some people have asked, given that there was this catastrophic demonetization policy, why wasn't there, you know, mass unrest in the country? Well, there, there was, and they were on both sides of history. On the one side, there were suicides, you know. Um, Over two, maybe 300,000, I've forgotten the exact number, farmers have committed suicide over the last 25 years. Uh, Much of this is because of the loss of price supports and the increase of the price of inputs. You know, they are being killed by the scissors effect. On the one side, prices have declined. On the other side, input costs have gone up. So you have hundreds of thousands of farmers who have committed suicide. With demonetization as well, one saw a spate of suicides. So the bad side of history, you know, when people act, it could be that they take their lives. This is also a form of protest, but it's a bad protest. Then on the other side, there have been many, many demonstrations against demonetization. But you see, what do people expect? Do they want to see a mass riot where, you know, India explodes and people burn down cities? This doesn't happen. And this actually, interestingly is not part of uh, the Indian political scene. You know, every country has its own political culture. And in India, this idea of a kind of mayhem, you know, where people come and burn down, uh, you know, a city or like in Venezuela in in 1989, the Caracazo, where -hmm. there was an uprising and the whole city was taken. This is not something that is available in India as part of the grammar of politics. And I think one has to understand that and has to be sensitive to that. You know, uh, every country gets the fascism it deserves, and every country also produces its own socialist agenda. And so you don't see that kind of, you know, IMF riot, for instance, uh, in India. What you see is, you see on the one side the bad uh, kind of protest, and then there is the good protest, where there are demonstrations, and you know, it is, I, I am an old-fashioned person. I believe that history moves somewhere, and you know, one hopes that this building of consciousness and confidence is eventually leading somewhere.
0: But I mean India has such a history and the culture of the left. What are what are some of the lessons um, that go beyond this sort of context that the Indian left can teach you know those of us in the north who are now dealing with what seems to be a you know a real and kind of sustained upsurge of, of the right and, and even the far right?
1: It's very hard to extrapolate lessons. I mean Look, the Indian left is very weak. It has a good history. Uh, it withstood the fall of the Soviet Union, partly because uh, one of the main parties of the communist uh, movement, above-ground parliamentary and extra-parliamentary movement, uh, broke with the Soviets in 1960s. You know, in other words, they said, we want to chart our own course. Um, so, it has a very good history, but it's weak. I mean, let's face it, There are that particular party, the Communist Party of India, Marxist, has about a million CADA members. And in the context of India, that's not a very large number. You know, uh, it, it, there are, you know, tens of millions of people in mass organizations, things like that, but still it's weak. It's weak in parliament. Uh, it's weak in its struggles. It's growing. I think it has many setbacks. It has uh, learnt better to to work with other social movements. You know, I mean, this is a process. It's hard to extrapolate lessons. I think if there was anything, I'd say maybe there would be two. Uh, One is uh, I cannot understand the absence of a political party. You know, um, it's not possible to build people's confidence and consciousness outside some kind of organizational framework. You know, one of my favorite thinkers, and it's good we're talking now because... Uh, We were just past Rosa Luxemburg's uh, 90th death anniversary. And Luxemburg, you know, when she talks about the importance of, on the one side, theory, and on the other side, practice, uh, the mediating category there is organization. You know, it is organization that mediates between theory and practice. Uh, If you don't have the category organization, then there's no fulcrum. You know, you can't just have theory and then practice. You know, who's going to do the practice? Pra- Where is it going to come from? You know, uh, <laughs> so what happens is you get people who are either academics doing theory and then they say, well, we need to go into a demonstration. But that's not practice. That's mm-hmm. merely a demonstration. Practice is when you are part of the sway of popular struggle against the tide. You know, that's actually praxis. Praxis is the kind of spontaneous Uh, development into organizational form uh, of, uh, you know, uh, 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 kind of uh, alternative to the present. So in that sense, one lesson is the importance of organization. The second lesson is whatever organizations there should be, they should be both highly principled in their own uh, agenda, but also deeply unsectarian, you know. uh, the. Issue is not to build a political organization. The issue is to transform the system. And I think sometimes organizations forget that. They get caught up in their own program and forget that the goal actually is not merely to further your program, but it's to build the confidence and consciousness of the masses. You can't do that if you're merely sectarian. So I think these are lessons that the Indian left has learned after very great struggle and uh, self Uh, you know, uh, criticism, to come to terms with the idea of the importance of organization and yet the importance of a kind of non-sectarian ethos.
0: That was author and journalist Vijay Prashad on the rights economic strategy for India. My second guest discusses the newly established but already draconian right in Brazil. Sabrina Fernandez is an activist on the radical left in Brazil she also recently completed a PhD in sociology, focusing on the left's role in Brazilian politics from Carleton University. She spoke to me from Brasilia. So the latest news from Brazil that I think you know hasn't maybe gotten the again the press it deserves is that this uh, the new right wing government led by Michael Temer is literally enshrining austerity in the constitution. It seems. Um, what what's the proposal and uh, and you know why is it so so bad and, and and such a big change
2: okay um well uh generally like uh the the Juma Hussein government uh was employing um, implementing austerity already so there had been cuts Uh, In general, there were attacks on workers' rights uh, that were uh, attached to the idea of economic growth. So uh, there's a recession coming. We're already uh, living through an economic slowdown. So we're going to, for example, try to uh, go after the workers so the uh, employers can feel more confident in the economy, right? So it, things weren't weren't so good under her already. Uh, in 2015, when she began her mandate, there were a series of attacks and the left was very much involved, uh, well, the radical left was very much involved in uh, going after her on those, but because... Um, there was this tension uh, around impeachment matters. Uh, they didn't like they couldn't really build much on it because the moderate left, the one led by the PT, was sort of like getting in the way. Um, and then um, there was a, a bit of discussion at the time that if Juma uh, if Rousseff was impeached and if Temer took over, would it be about the same thing? Would it get worse? Uh, the radical left was split around that. And uh, while well, it turns out uh, a lot, there's consensus right now that things have really, really gotten much worse than they were uh, under Rousseff, Um, because Temer has, um, Temer is being bolder in terms of his proposals. He's not only um, uh, making general cuts across the board, but he's also making more concessions to the elite. And part of, the, part, part of this is related to the, the oh, sorry, pa- package that basically alters the constitution. And uh, goes against a lot of the rights that had been secured since 1988. And those were rights that were fought for uh, by people who were engaged against the dictatorship. So technically, the Brazilian constitution of 1988 is actually pretty good in terms of rights. Uh, I'm not going to say they were uh, well implemented. They weren't. Um, but like there, there's even provisions for agrarian reform in the Brazilian constitution. We didn't go through a agrarian reform, but the provis- provisions are there. Uh, so by um, putting this proposal forward as a pecky, like, uh, like a, a constitutional amendment, uh, Tamar is basically trying to say that those things are, are out of the question now. Uh, and that has allowed him to touch on matters related to health and education uh, in a very deep way that Rousseff was not able to do before. Um, A lot of the austerity uh, being put forward by the PT government uh, were like a few budget cuts here and there. Um, But at the same time, they will be allocating money to other matters, such as um, uh, exchange programs for uh, university students at the undergraduate level, a few uh, fellowships and things like that. And now TAMRA is going even after those. Uh, There's been recent cuts to uh, research fellowships and scholarships. Uh, uh, Through the budget law for this year. And um, that, like, there is a speculation that this is going to cause really, uh, like, a really big flow uh, of students and researchers out of the country. So, Brazil is going to go through a a brain drain period. And since the 20 years of austerity uh, being implemented through this uh, big package, so it goes way after Tamar is uh, out of the government. And uh, that's going to make things worse in terms of uh, the universities. A lot of the universities are basically uh, public universities, like some of them uh, were not aware if they're actually going to have uh, classes this year because they're running on a huge deficit. Uh, and this is about to get worse with the cuts that he implemented. Um, there are cuts related uh, to health care. There are also uh, part of how, for example, the Ministry of Health appointed by Tamar is a big friend of the private health care plans. So, um there's uh, this idea that, like, if you're going to remove uh, more and more funds from the public system, people are just going to uh, migrate back into the private system. And it, it's working. Like, it has worked so far in terms of uh, health care in Brazil. Almost everyone who can t- can afford a little bit of pr- private health care, they're going to go for it. And it, uh, it's about to get worse now.
0: Is that the same in education as well? Is there a movement towards something like, you know, charter schools or private schools or anything like that in Brazil? And the same thing with... Uh, with healthcare, is it uh, is it looking like a big sort of privatization agenda?
2: Oh yeah, uh, certainly. Um, Brazilian healthcare, uh, like Brazil, has this uh, universal healthcare system um, that's uh, pretty comprehensive, but it's awful in terms of quality and access because people die in the lineups, and uh, uh, you don't have enough doctors. Um, but because of this, throughout the years, the private healthcare system has gotten pretty strong. Like entire hospitals and uh, practices, and uh, the the middle class and up, everyone tends to pay for a pri- private healthcare uh, plan every month, uh, so they can access those systems uh, because they don't want to risk having to go to a public hospital. But the majority of people in the country still use the the healthcare system provided by the government. The current mini, uh, minister is very much against it. He's been arguing that uh, Brazil cannot afford to have a system like that anymore. And uh, well, he got a lot of uh, campaign donations from the private healthcare companies. Um, and uh, the government has been involved, including like not just the Tamil government. Even the judiciary has been. Um, uh, a, a supporter of forgiving the debts of these companies, being very lenient towards uh, when the private healthcare system is overcharging or they're not um, providing the services that they claim they're providing. Uh, so they they've been advancing um, very much right now, and the tendency is that um, if the uh, public healthcare system gets even worse than it is right now. Uh, Hospitals are going to uh, begin closing and they might uh, start implementing like one of the ideas, actually, since people are already go towards the private care uh, systems, the idea is for them to start charging for the public system, um, user fees and things like that, which uh, never happened before uh, during this current system. And for uh, private education in Brazil is actually uh, quite interesting, right? We have a lot of private universities. Um, they really increased under the Lula and Rousseff mandate, uh, mandates. Um, the, the PT governments were very intent on transferring public funds into the private education system um, that goes for, for post-secondary education as well as for um, high school-based ed- education, uh, childcare education. Um, so there's been this transfer of funds, or like tax, uh, tax money. Uh, into the private system for a while. And the idea that if you don't put your kid into a private school, they're not going to be able to pass university entrance exams and then go to a good public university. So people tend to pay for private uh, schooling so they so their kids can get into a public university for free later. Sort of the other way around.
0: That gets to what the PT years really w- were and how they sort of got Brazil to this place, where right? The previous guest on the show... Um said that basically you know the years were about redistributing the gains from growth rather than just rather than questioning the neoliberal mod- model itself or underli or the underlying growth model or whatever is this an accurate way of putting it, and is there a way in which you know some of those missed opportunities have sort of set up this backlash right now?
2: Well, there was some redistribution. I wouldn't call it radical or, or I wouldn't call it the rule of the game I implemented by the PT. Um, my approach to it, to it is that the PT uh, was uh, thriving on the idea of like ambiguity. So um, using these social programs to maintain a certain level of consent, uh, maintain its leftist appearance, uh, appearance its uh, electoral base, uh, but at the same time making huge concessions to the elites. Uh, so um, there's, there's even some questioning right now in terms of numbers uh, on whether inequality in Brazil actually decreased as much as it did during the Lula and the Rousseff years. Maybe not so much. Uh, and definitely the, the rich got richer. Um, there were uh, uh, big projects involving, for example, the mega events in Brazil, the World Cup and the Olympics. Um, They were not uh, aimed at redistribution at all. They were aimed at concessions towards construction companies, uh, including construction companies that were involved in the huge corruption scandals uh, involving both the right wing and the PT as well, uh, such as the Lava Lava Jato scandal right now. Um, so I, I wouldn't go as far as like claiming that it was a redistribution project. Uh, there was some level like reformist approaches over there. Um, but I, I am in favor of a position that the PT was running a neoliberal government with a more humane face, if that's possible.
0: Uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible, but then you get, uh, you get the really ugly face right, right afterwards, it seems.
2: Exactly. Yes. Yes. There's no, yeah, it's just a facade, right?
0: i want to touch on your research, which focuses on the left in brazil how has how how has the left you know the left to the left of the p t the more radical left adjusted to this new situation um under tamed right now in other words you know what was its relationship to the p t government uh and has that been a challenge now that the government is you know the, the mask is off, as, as you'd say.
2: Well, it's complicated. The majority of the radical left in Brazil was born out of the PT and started breaking away uh, the more uh, moderate the PT became. Uh, and that was like goes, uh, goes as far back as uh, the early 1990s uh, and even the late 1980s. So as soon as the PT started moving towards uh, concentration of institutional power, uh, trying to reproduce that power at all costs, um, we had all of these schisms happening. Um, and but the radical left is still really small compared to the size of the PT even today. The PT and the moderate left and that So like a few social movements uh, that I would group together with the PT, such as such as the Landless Workers Movement, though there's also dissent in that movement today. Uh, The Central Workers Union, the National Union of Students, uh, all of those uh, would make up the moderate left and they're much larger than the radical left today. They have more uh, state apparatus. Um, They have uh, more uh, contact with the the people through the years and they have a very strong electoral base Um, that has diminished. And as that has diminished, there is a challenge for the radical left to try to come up with a proposal that's appealing to the people uh, leaving the PT base. But a lot of those people left towards uh, the center, towards the conservative right. Uh, So uh, it's part of the problem today. And now because um, the PT is no longer in power, the federal government, um, before the, uh, the radical left was dealing with a problem of false polarization as if the PT was a true left and then fighting against the right, uh, that caused a lot of conflict, especially during the impeachment crisis and trying to organize because the PT tends to try to co-opt the spaces a lot. Um, but, um after the impeachment crisis was over, there was this idea that, well, now the left really needs to stick together in order to uh, resist and fight against the thermal government. But turns out the PT is still playing its old game of ambiguity. Um, Recently in Sao Paulo, um, there was an election of a um, right-wing mayor in the city of Sao Paulo. And uh, when when the chamber uh, of City Council got together, Uh, The PT was supporting like a right wing uh, president uh, for the for the city council uh, presidency. Um, So in name of governability, maybe not so much because the the mayor is no longer PT mayor. So um, it's hard to deal with this idea that, well, we have to have unity in the left when it's when the moderate left only wants unity when it's convenient for them. So the radical left has come up with a new uh, new approach uh, to showing itself as a more authentic left, but also trying to communicate to people what it means to be left. Because the anti uh, petismo, the anti-worker's party sentiment also affected the radical left as anti-leftism. And that's very strong right now.
0: In general, how strong is the position of the Temer government right now in terms of popular support and I mean for a long time it seemed to be kind of shaky everyone's sort of implicated in corruption but it seems like it's being able to implement these constitutional changes uh, is it, does it have a chance of sort of sustaining itself and is that partly because of this sort of popular sentiment where you know opposition to the PT government became a kind of opposition to, to the left in general
2: Yes, it's complicated because um, the the content of all of the like the major anti-corruption protests, demonstrations, and all sort of outcry around corruption in Brazil uh, had this very strong anti-leftist sentiment around it. Uh, so, uh, because the right has been able to m- manipulate dissent around corruption, it means that the corruption scandals that Tamer was involved that could have led to his impeachment are not really going forward. Also Tamer has the chamber deputies and the Senate on his side. Uh, he definitely has the, the Supreme Court on his side. He was just traveling with one of the Supreme Court uh, justices the other day. Um, so there's no uh, we shouldn't think that uh, the even though there's like three powers in Brazil, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary, they're definitely not impartial powers they've been on his side and that helps him uh, go through it as well as the media that's always trying to, uh, muffle, uh, any, any, uh, sounds related to, uh, the corruption of the Tamer government. And like, in fact, like Tamer is not, uh, eligible for running for government again for another eight years. Uh, so that, that's quite ironic, but that's what's happening right now. And, uh, in general, uh, the radical left has had like a hard time dealing with this because it's, it's calling for like a, a like a Tamar out campaign. But it's not really resonating with the people as much as they thought they would. There's a huge level of apathy. People are tired of it, but they're also, in turn, uh, they're also kind of disillusioned with the political situation. Like everyone is stealing from the people anyway, so like, well, what's the difference? And but uh, also that idea related to the anti-petismo that well, Dilma was worse, even though she wasn't implicated in scandals like this at all. Um, So there's a uh, there's a manipulation of consent that's very strong and it's hard to penetrate through that because the right wing has been able to mobilize depoliticization in its favor.
0: You know, if you're saying there's apathy or people are saying it's all the same, it doesn't matter, does that mean you have to really reorient your strategy towards something that's, you know, maybe not just this slogan versus that one or what have you, like into a different kind of politics?
2: No, I can see that. I wouldn't say, um, even though there are some tendencies in Brazil, to think that are, like, if, at the ma- macro-political scale things are so bad, maybe we should focus into more like localist approaches. Um, those are more at the margins of like of the radical left right now. A lot of the push right now is uh, to return to the roots of base building, reconnecting with the people uh, at their more, most basic struggles. In terms of workers' rights, uh, one of those being uh, like one of the uh, uh, most important rights uh, where the radical left has been able to connect with people right now is housing rights. We have a huge uh, urban crisis in Brazil in terms of uh, public transportation and access to housing. Um, so, like, it's no surprise that the homeless workers movement has been a huge leader for the radical left. It maintains a few uh, bridges open with the moderate left as well, uh, but it's definitely a leader of the radical left and that, that has helped uh, them connect a bit more, even though they're also attacked like the, the leader, of, like the national leader of the homeless workers movement, Guilherme Bolos was arrested yesterday uh, during a negotiation to avoid an eviction of 700 families. Um, uh, So there's a criminalization of social movements that started uh, in the PT government uh, and is going further now with with the Tamar government uh, that uh, is preventing the radical left from connecting. Uh, But part of the idea is that you have to go back to base building because you have to um, connect with people because they know their struggles, but um, they have different ideas today uh, on how to actually go forward with that.
0: Yeah, and and maybe very last thing which i asked i had vj prashad on talking about india and i asked him this as well i mean it's a very different context but in in some ways what what are some of the lessons that sort of the you know maybe the, the northern left can learn from brazil's experience or more like do you see some similar some similarities between what's happening to the pt and sort of what's happening to social democratic parties and in the global north and in other parts of the world and are there lessons in how the left relates to social democracy coming out of um brazil's experience
2: well certainly um the main lesson would be the concessions don't pay off um the premise behind the pt was uh the strategy called like the tweezer strategy that you could grow uh, with the people in the popular side and it could grow institutionally. And with that, you could go forward towards eventually like a, a revolutionary moment, like building the proper correlation of forces for that. And the PT got completely out of hand in the institutional side. So when there's a, a over-prioritization like over prioritization of that, um, it's not going to pay off because what happens to the PT is that it held on to for uh, four presidential mandates, um, but it it's... Um, you know partially destroyed right now. We couldn't really elect mayors in any of the main cities of the country uh, in the last election. Uh, it's suffering from like anti leftism uh, and it was involved in demobilizing a lot of important struggles only to maintain itself in power. Um, so um, there's a discussion around that. But at the same time, you have to consider, you know. Um, it's also important to have some of institutional uh, power. The radical left has been engaging these discussions right now. They're already thinking uh, of the elections for 2018 uh, because uh, it is a problem. We've seen how much uh, d- uh, damage can be done if you have a very uh, austerity-prone right-wing government uh, in power right now. So uh, it's about striking that balance. That's really odd, but also striking that balance uh, in conjunction with the people, not just uh, creating these strategies from a vanguardist position. So I think there are lessons to be learned, uh, both um, what happened with the PT, but also the struggle of a very fragmented radical left in Brazil right now.
0: That was activist and academic Sabrina Fernandez on Brazil's Turn to the Right. That's all for this week. Talk again soon.